Welcome to the VJ Health Podcast. Uh, I am here with Ahmed El Sohemi. As a quick introduction, you're a professor in nutrigenomics at the University of Toronto, where you've been for over 20 years, and the founder of Nutrigenomics, uh, which is with an X, uh, a genetic testing company for nutritional professionals. Today, we're going to be talking about genes associated with iron absorption and how they relate to premenstrual uh, symptoms, uh, sport performance, and uh, lots of other things. Iron is, of course, a very important nutrient um, and more difficult to get from a plant-based diet compared to meat, which is why we talk a lot about it at Vojo. At Vojo, as I'm sure you do at Nutrigenomics, we analyze all the iron-related genes uh, you include in your papers, uh, so it'd be great to discuss them all and their effects. So just to provide some context to our listeners, um, well firstly, would you like to introduce more about yourself and how you got into nutrition and genetics in the first place? Sure, uh, first of all, hi Ellie, and uh, thank you for inviting me on your show. Yeah, as you said, I, I'm a professor at the University of Toronto, where I've been doing research uh, in the field of nutrigenomics uh, and nutrigenetics for just over 20 years now. Uh, our research has focused over the years on a variety of different outcomes, things like cardiometabolic disease, um, but also areas that have been under-researched, like premenstrual symptoms, uh, and also athletic performance. So really, our research, you know, kind of runs the gamut of, of you know, all kinds of different outcomes that uh, we find of particular interest and obviously have relevance and importance uh, and significance to uh, different uh, populations and different uh, individuals. Iron is a very interesting nutrient, isn't it? Because you, we hear a lot about iron deficiencies and obviously you need to have enough uh, to be able to do important things like build red blood cells uh, and everything else. But you also shouldn't have too much because high iron levels are also associated with yeah, cardiometabolic diseases, um, diabetes, things like that. So it's really important to get the right balance. Yes, you're right. And, and it is one of those nutrients, uh, like I suppose every nutrient, but in particular uh, because of the well-known um, adverse effects of too much iron and uh, potentially toxic effects in some people who have a uh, mm -hmm. specific genetic predisposition to absorbing too much iron. Uh, but uh, as you say, it is one of the uh, most common uh, micronutrient deficiencies in the world. Uh, so clearly it's important to ensure that um, people are getting adequate amounts uh, without getting too much where uh, you run the risk of, of experience some, some of the harmful effects of too much iron. So a good place to start would be how your genes can uh, affect your iron levels. So very simply, um, how does that work? Sure, well, it's been known for quite some time uh, that this uh, inherited condition called hemochromatosis or also called iron overload uh, can occur and this is where uh, individuals have a particular version of a gene that results in uh, too much iron being absorbed uh, from the gut and what happens of course is that iron uh, builds up in various tissues such as the liver and, and other and joints uh, and causes tissue damage 
uh, and can ultimately cause organ failure. Uh, and so since then, uh, I mean, that gene called HFE uh, has been identified and specific polymorphisms or variations in that gene uh, have been shown to uh, predict the risk of uh, having iron overload. Uh, and so those are the genetic markers that, as you mentioned, are covered in, uh, in your panel uh, and also what we test at, uh, at Nutrigenomics. We've also uh, found out over the years that uh, there are also genetic markers that can explain you know, kind of the other side of the coin, not too much iron, but not enough iron being absorbed. So some individuals have variations in these other genes that impair their ability to absorb iron and to utilize iron. So uh, again, when we're looking at the genetics, uh, it, it's really a balance of looking at those who have the risk of not getting enough iron absorbed versus those who have the risk of absorbing too much. And so we had you know, created an, an algorithm, of course, that um, tries to balance that because there are some people that have the, both of those genetic variants. And so the question is, what do you do with them? Well, we know that really the iron overload, um, you know, kind of piece of the puzzle really uh, supersedes what happens from the other end. So it's most critical to ensure that someone does not have uh, too much iron because some of those uh, harmful effects can be irreversible. Uh, and so our recommendations are really kind of based on, on the balance of the combination of the different genes that uh, individuals have. Uh, and so to try to understand that more, because these genes have only been recently discovered, uh, we have been conducting some of uh, original research of our own to try to understand how these different combinations of genes impact various outcomes of interest. I was really excited to see your papers, especially the one uh, on how these iron genes affects premenstrual symptoms, because um, this is research that I haven't seen anywhere else. And as you say, most of it focuses on cardiometabolic diseases. So the fact you're focusing on uh, things like PMS and sport performance, which is really relatable to a lot of people, is um, it's incredibly useful. Uh, why do you think there haven't been more studies uh, in these areas up to now? It's a great question, and particularly when it comes to uh, premenstrual symptoms. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I think it's just it's been surprisingly a neglected field of research um, because the fact is. Uh, not everyone experiences those symptoms, and some women experience it uh, much more severely than others. Uh, and because it's not officially classified as a disease, uh, I mean, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is a, an extreme and rare form of, of PMS, uh, is classified in the in the DSM, which is the kind of official manual of um, mental health conditions. Um, or psychiatric conditions, I should say. So it, it's, it is recognized as a condition, but regarded as, you know, something that's 
primarily due to hormonal imbalances or differences in response to hormones. So not that the hormone levels are different, but the women respond differently to uh, those fluctuations during the menstrual cycle. Um, so again, unlike you know cardiovascular disease and cancer where researchers can document the number of deaths attributed to that and the uh, impact on healthcare systems and they can get grants to fund the research. Um, it's much less likely to happen with something like uh, premenstrual symptoms. Um, but when you think about it, it really can be extremely disruptive uh, to the quality of life of, of a lot of women. Uh, and that's why when we established our Toronto Nutrigenomics and Health Study uh, at our team meeting, we were brainstorming in terms of, you know, what else can we uh, set up our study to examine? Uh, and this came up as one of the topics. And uh, again, you know, some of the women in the room responded by saying, oh, well, I actually don't really experience it that much. Others are like, you know what, I'm completely incapacitated for, you know, two or three days of the month. So we thought, okay, you know, not that that was great, but it's fascinating from a research perspective to see that people can respond so differently to a particular um, uh, stage of, of their uh, life cycle. Uh, so we thought, okay, well, let's uh, look at what research has been done. What are the validated questionnaires? What are those symptoms that some women experience while others don't? Uh, and let's start um, examining that in, in our cohort. Uh, and so that's what we did. We were building up our database. And so we recruited uh, just over 1,600 participants. Um, and... Uh, one of our, I mean, we've been looking at other aspects of, of premenstrual symptoms. We published a paper a couple of years ago uh, showing that low blood levels of vitamin D uh, can contribute to certain premenstrual symptoms, but not others. Uh, and so this more recent research that we've conducted uh, has been focusing on iron. So what exactly did you test and what did you find? So for this latest uh, work, we wanted to investigate the role of iron uh, because there has been uh, some indirect evidence to suggest that it might contribute to premenstrual symptoms. Um, part of that evidence is things like, you know, estrogen, which is known to impact um, uh, premenstrual symptoms, uh, alters iron um, metabolism. Uh, iron is required for the synthesis of some neurotransmitters like serotonin, which we know can affect uh, things like mood. Uh, and so based on that uh, kind of circumstantial evidence, uh, we sought to explore whether or not iron is linked to premenstrual symptoms. Now, the approach we took is one that's called Mendelian randomization. And that's just a fancy word that geneticists use uh, to describe looking at uh, a gene that is uh, indicative or predictive of iron exposure. So rather than looking at uh, a dietary questionnaire, which we know have, you know, they're, they're not perfect in terms of determining how much iron 
uh, a person is actually consuming, uh, we used um, variations in genes that predict blood levels or blood stores of iron because these genes, um, almost regardless of how much you're consuming, are pretty strong predictors of how much of that iron your body actually utilizes. Uh, and so based on that study design, we found that those who have a particular version of a gene that results in higher iron stores, uh, those women had uh, a lower risk or likelihood of experiencing certain premenstrual symptoms. And this was the HFE gene? Correct. And that's the one that uh, predicts iron overload. Um, now, mm -hmm. I should mention that uh, this HFE gene um, that does cause iron overload and hemochromatosis and some of these adverse effects, obviously it's less harmful uh, to women because women, uh, based on their menstrual cycle, do lose blood um, you know, every month. And so that, that decreases the likelihood of having that, um, you know, the overload of iron. Whereas men who have this version of the gene, uh, they are at a higher risk of the adverse effects uh, of iron, iron overload because they don't have that kind of monthly clearance of, uh, of iron from their system. So you might have this gene and you may not have full-blown hemochromatosis. So you may not have any sort of diagnosis or even experience any of those negative side effects associated with iron overload, but you could be experiencing something like, um, well, you could be experiencing other more subtle effects of having that gene. Is that Absolutely. correct? Um, and again, because in our study on premenstrual symptoms, obviously we were only uh, investigating this in women. Um, so, so many of them probably might not know that they have uh, this because if anything, it's protecting them from iron deficiency anemia, which is actually much more common among women. So they might actually have, you know, pretty normal um, or the upper end of normal when it comes to their iron stores because they have that um, kind of the monthly uh, clearance. Um, but at the same time, during the rest of the cycle, they are absorbing more iron. And so a, a more prevalent uh, situation is really iron deficiency anemia among women um, in that age category that are uh, menstruating. So it could actually be a good thing to have this gene for some women. Uh, absolutely. Uh, um, but again, it really is uh, kind of a balance. Uh, and also it yep. takes into it, you know, one also has to take into account uh, dietary intake uh, because um, typically uh, women of um, in that age category of, you know, early teens to uh, pre-menopause, uh, are sometimes advised to take an iron supplement uh, because they're uh, not always able to get sufficient amounts of iron in their diet and because of the loss of blood uh, each month, then they're at a higher risk of deficiency. Uh, but if, again, if they have this version of the gene, that might actually protect them from, uh, from deficiency. And if they have that gene, what effect would have it would taking an iron supplement have 
or could have? Well, then, then it uh, could, re- depending, of course, on how much iron is in the supplement, um, but it could have uh, adverse effects because then you will be storing, uh, first of all, absorbing too much iron uh, and then storing it, and then that would lead to some of that tissue damage that, uh, that I mentioned. But, um, yeah, it really depends on the amount because even for those who do have hemochromatosis, the recommended intake of iron uh, is the uh, the RDA, the recommended dietary allowance, which is similar to uh, someone who does not have uh, this gene. Uh, they just need mm-hmm. to be mindful of not consuming more than that uh, because of uh, the uh, the adverse effects they would experience. Yeah, a lot of um, a lot of supplements for vegans and people on plant-based diets contain iron because obviously a plant-based diet has less iron or less absorbable iron than a meat-based diet. So is that something that people on a plant-based diet should be wary of? Well, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, specifically perhaps less absorbable because of course we know that, um, you know, many legumes are actually quite rich in iron. Um, yeah. you know, and it's interesting because, you know, my, my background is Egyptian. And when I think of some of the, uh, staple foods that are consumed there, uh, like for breakfast, you know, there'll be a lot of, you know, chickpeas and fava beans. Uh, and it's interesting because I know that something like fava beans, uh, the dish is often, um, prepared with, uh, lemon. Uh, and so when mm-hmm. you think of, you know, the, um, I don't know why that is. Maybe, you know, once upon a time, someone discovered that, you know, they're healthier if they put lemon uh, in their fava beans, but fava beans are quite rich in iron. Uh, but of course, knowing that it's non-heme iron, but um, vitamin C clearly can improve the absorption of iron. So just the way that I just, you know, it, it's something that kind of popped into mind a few months ago as I was uh, preparing a dish of fava beans and putting lemon on it. And I realized, hey, this is actually helping to absorb more of the iron from, from, the, from the bean. So, uh, sorry, it's a bit of a tangent, but it just kind of popped to mind because I, I just realized that, you know, when we're looking at um, heme versus non-heme, uh, obviously you want to consume it with uh, a good dose of uh, vitamin C to enhance uh, the absorption. No, yeah, it's it's definitely a good tangent to take. Um, I'm happy with that. Uh, yeah, I, I've been thinking the same, actually. Like a lot of more traditional dishes do combine um, high iron plant foods such as beans with with something uh, citrusy or high in vitamin C, like hummus as well. Like that's chickpeas right. and lemon juice. Um, and there are, there are lots of examples. So I think there, there must be something there. There must have been at some point people realize that, ah, okay, this is a good combination for health somehow. Um, it's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I myself have been, I mean, I'm not, I'm not vegan, but I've certainly been, um, you know, incorporating much more, uh, kind of plant-based, um, foods in, in my diet and, and doing that, of course, I'm also, you know, mindful of what, uh, I might be at risk of, of deficiency for. So things like, you know, B12, uh, iron. And, uh, again, that's when it kind of popped to mind that, Hey, you know, just based on how dishes are prepared, you can actually, uh, optimize or maximize the, uh, 
absorption and utilization of some of these nutrients. Um, good to hear that you're incorporating more plants into your diet, by the way. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll get you 100% eventually, but Getting don't there, tell Baby steps, yeah. <laughs> Um, so your study on, on premenstrual symptoms, you found that people with the, the higher absorption genes actually experienced a, a lower rate of uh, premenstrual symptoms. Correct. So ah, this might explain um, why I have never experienced premenstrual symptoms. I, I have, I'm only heterozygous for the HFE gene, the main one. Um, so that's I always like to say half a gene, <laughs> you know, it's like there are two alleles per gene and I, I have uh, one of them um, and I've, I've never experienced premenstrual symptoms in my life. And it always shocked me how much other women experience, uh, like a long time ago, I used to say, ah, people are just making a big fuss over nothing. But actually, of course, there is such a, a, a difference in experience. And um, absolutely. Yeah. Fact, now now I can know. understand. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny you mention that because I know, I mean, some of the women that I've um, known who have it in a very bad way, um, they actually say that sometimes it's, you know, other women who are, you know, just kind of less sympathetic because they experience something very different. Uh, and to them, it's like, oh, yeah, sure, you know, I'm bleeding, but, you know, I go into work and it's fine, whereas they are absolutely incapacitated, uh, crippling cramps. Um, again, when you think of the more severe form of it called PMDD or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, um, it, it gets very bad, uh, both uh, physical in terms of, you know, excruciating uh, pain, uh, but also the psychological that um, even leads some women to commit suicide. So it's, it is absolutely a uh, very important health condition. Uh, that we do need to uh, take seriously and we need to uh, uncover some of the risk factors and see what we can do to, uh, to help these women cope beyond, um, you know, extreme measures like some surgical procedures and uh, certain kinds of, um, you know, hormonal treatments that have other adverse effects. So if there's anything we can do in terms of diet and lifestyle, to uh, try to alleviate the severity of some of those symptoms, uh, I think that's, uh, that's a good step. You know, this is what I love about genetics. There are two sides to it. There's the part where you can actually understand and empathize with other people because they don't experience the same thing as you. And now you can see why, okay, they are genetically different to you. This is why their experience is different. Um, and on the other side, it's actually coming up with actionable uh, things that people can do which are personalized to them which are more likely to work for them so you know it's it's an all-round good thing to be able to personalize uh, personalize these things with PMS what can people do if they have um, if well if they don't have the the iron absorption genes for example mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think what at least this initial study has shown is um, optimizing or at least the, uh, it suggests that, um, you know, kind of upping your iron stores might alleviate some of these symptoms. Uh, so perhaps um, someone who is experiencing some of these symptoms uh, may want to have their blood iron levels uh, 
measured uh, through their physician. Uh, and if it's not near the upper end, then perhaps they can discuss with their healthcare practitioner uh, a certain supplementation regimen that could, you know, up their iron stores, um, you know, kind of towards the upper end of normal, uh, as opposed to average or even, you know, lower end. Uh, and the same thing goes with a lot of other micronutrients. There's been some research on calcium. It's probably the, one of the more widely studied micronutrients on premenstrual symptoms. Again, not that there's been a lot of research. Uh, also some evidence on vitamin B6. Um, but again, you know, we hesitate to recommend just, uh, you know, multivitamin for everyone every day. Uh, but it's really trying to understand uh, which of the particular micronutrients uh, a person might have insufficient levels of. Uh, and that's determined, as you know, not only by their diet, but also by their genetics. Uh, and that's why it's important. And it's great that, you know, you offer that kind of service where uh, you help individuals understand uh, which micronutrients they need to focus more on uh, because of how their body processes that. Uh, do they absorb or utilize too much of it? Uh, things like sodium, for example, and they need to really kind of cut back. Uh, or are they less efficient at utilizing it? Something like, you know, B12 or vitamin D. Um, and, and they need to kind of up their intake or focus a little bit more on that particular micronutrient. So it is all about, you know, kind of, being personalized. Um, but as you say, you know, understanding those outliers, uh, those exceptions to the rule, help us better understand what we can do for uh, kind of the general uh, population. Yeah, I love how you say it's about helping people understand themselves and how their diet and nutrition, what they can do for them. Um, that's always such a big part uh, of, of my work and I'm sure yours as well is to help people really understand themselves and do what's best for them. Um, but of course, it's never just about one nutrient, right? Or one gene, like everything interacts with each other. We've already mentioned vitamin C and you just mentioned calcium as well. So calcium can actually inhibit the absorption of iron. Um, whereas vitamin C can increase it. So, you know, it's not, it's not just about iron in this case, it's about several different nutrients as well and absolutely. how they interact. Yeah, absolutely. So you also studied um, the effect of these genes on sport performance. What did you find there? Right, so we uh, actually had, um, you know, a couple of students working um, simultaneously on these two different projects, but looking at the same genes. Uh, and interestingly, we published these two papers, uh, I think within the span of one week uh, apart. So uh, the second paper that uh, you mentioned, we, we found that among uh, athletes who have the uh, version of this HFE gene that increases the risk of, of uh, iron overload or too much iron, they actually perform better in, uh, in an endurance uh, trial. So they conducted, we conducted this uh, 10 kilometer cycling time trial. So athletes got on a bike and they were told to cycle as fast as they can uh, and uh, for 10 kilometers. Uh, and then we looked at how much time it took for them to complete it. And those who had 
the version of the HFE gene that uh, results in more iron being absorbed, uh, which again, as you mentioned, has a risk of toxicity, uh, but because they're increasing their iron stores and their oxygen utilization, uh, they actually performed better. They cycled quicker. Uh, it took them less time to complete 10, kilometer, uh, 10 kilometers. Um, we also found that those same individuals had a higher VO2 max. And so that's a, uh, that's a term that's used to describe oxygen carrying capacity. Uh, and again, it seems to make sense because we know that if you don't have enough iron, um, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to, uh, your muscles are going to be starved of oxygen, or at least they're not going to get as much. So when you think of hemoglobin as a major carrier of uh, iron and, and uh, oxygen in, in the circulation, and myoglobin, which serves a similar role in, uh, in muscles, uh, you really need to have optimal iron stores to, uh, uh, to ensure that uh, you're performing, you're, that your muscles are not being uh, limited in terms of what they can do. Uh, and so, yeah, we thought that was quite interesting. I love how this is a great example of how there's, um, you know, there's always a, a positive and a negative side to, to all genetic variants. And a lot of the time, as we began with, we hear about the negative side of having this HFE gene, which is hemochromatosis and iron overload and all of these bad things. Um, but you're studying all of these, you're finding all of these good things associated with having these genetic variants. So it's a lot about knowing what genes you have and how to manage them and how to work with them and how you can get the best out of yourself by knowing this information. Absolutely. So um, I'm very grateful for the studies that you're doing in this area. Thank you. I mean, again, as you say, we often, um, you know, a lot of these genes are versions of a gene that we consider harmful, um, you know, they exist uh, because clearly at some stage there, there is some evolutionary advantage to having them. Uh, and, you know, we think of, of, of um, certain genes, um, the, the name just slips my mind, that's uh, common in certain African populations. Um, it's, a, I think it's a G6PD uh, deficiency. It slips my mind the name of the gene, but uh, individuals who have that so even though it predisposes to certain adverse health conditions, they're actually resistant to malaria. And malaria is quite common in certain uh, African nations. So whereas um, you, you might think that it's a, um, uh, a deleterious uh, genetic uh, condition, it actually, uh, sickle cell, that's the one I was thinking of. So the gene that causes sickle cell anemia uh, obviously, adverse effects, uh, but they are protected from malaria, which is common in those uh, in those parts of the world. So uh, again, it's you know we're not saying HFE is necessarily a good thing all around, uh, but also it's not a bad thing all around. It really depends on the circumstances and the conditions and for individuals. And this is really why you know I'm I'm you know so passionate about personalized nutrition. Uh, it's to help people understand how to work with the genetic cards that they've been dealt. We don't like to think of, you know, a bad version of a gene uh, versus a good version. It's 
this version, what can we do with that versus a different version? Exactly. And yeah, like you say, every gene or every polymorphism is there for a reason uh, and it was valid at some point, maybe not now for you in this environment, but there are things you can do with it. Um, I've, correct me if I'm wrong, but HFE came about originally because in certain areas there was poor iron content in the soil. And so having the HFE gene helped you absorb more iron, obviously, um, from your food uh, when um, in areas where there wasn't so much available. So, yeah, there's, it happened for a very good reason to help with human survival. Absolutely. And, and there's a lot of those kinds of examples. Um, you know, it's thought that um, the gene for uh, lactose intolerance uh, or actually lactose tolerance, that seems to be the version that had evolved uh, in uh, certain, you know, nomadic tribes that were raising cattle and those who had that version that uh, prevented them from experiencing, you know, those adverse effects when consuming uh, cow's milk, uh, they were able to thrive because they had access to a very nutrient rich source of, uh, of food. Uh, and uh, again, we see a few of those kinds of examples um, with different genes in different parts of the world. Yeah, I always say that um, actually, if you have the gene for lactose intolerance, that's that's the more normal gene, or well, that's the original one. <laughs> uh, which is interesting because usually it's thought of as the the the, the less um, the less normal thing to be lactose intolerant as an adult. Um, but it's a very good argument for uh, for veganism that I I probably use too much. Um, so. Your research has been incredibly, incredibly interesting. Where can people find out more about the research you do and the work you do at Nutrigenomics? Well, um, so the research that uh, that I do and my team at the University of Toronto, I mean, we uh, we publish in um, in various journals. Uh, I'm also the uh, editor in chief of uh, a journal called uh, Genes and Nutrition, uh, as well as a specialty chief editor of uh, the nutrigenomics section of a journal called Frontiers in Nutrition. Uh, I'm also guest editor of a special issue of uh, Precision Nutrition uh, together with uh, Professor Lynn uh, Ferguson from uh, the University of Auckland in New Zealand, uh, and that's in the journal Nutrients. Uh, I'm also a guest editor, uh, co-guest editor of a special issue on uh, uh, again, personalized and precision nutrition uh, for the Journal of Nutritional Biochemistry. So a lot of these uh, traditional nutrition journals uh, are um, commissioning or have commissioned a special uh, issue on nutrigenomics or precision nutrition because they realize that it's such a, a critical part of any aspect of nutrition. I mean, the way I view nutrition research is we now have to go back and look at everything we ever thought we knew about nutrition and health and disease uh, and revisit that and look to see, you know, who's a responder and who's a non-responder. Uh, traditionally, we've always just compared group averages, those in the intervention group versus those in the control group. Uh, and, you know, we often see a, a spread you know, you get this big standard deviation 
but if there's a statistically significant difference between those group averages, we conclude that yes, this intervention is good or it's beneficial. But if you look at each individual person and how they respond, uh, that average in that intervention group reflects some people who were super responders versus some who didn't respond at all. In fact, some might have responded in the opposite direction, but we just compare averages. So we really need to change the way that we conduct nutrition research and how we look at our data uh, and really focus on that variation and look at how we can better predict uh, individual responses, right? You know, none of us are the average person. Uh, we want to know what works for us as an individual. I don't really care what happens on uh, kind of a typical case if there's a way for me to know how I respond uh, individually. So um, through the company, Nutrigenomics with an X, we have been supporting some original research at a number of universities around the world. Uh, there was a big study that was published just last year in the British Medical Journal, uh, Nutrition Prevention and Health, showing that those who receive DNA-based dietary advice, and it happened to be the Nutrigenomics test, uh, that they actually improve compliance to the recommendations uh, and they had more favorable uh, changes in body weight and body composition after three months and six months. Uh, and so we had no influence on the interpretation of those results. So we just kind of support research uh, independently uh, because we believe in the science and we want to uh, continue to uh, promote the science. Um, not all nutrition researchers have embraced this because, you know, they're used to their own way of doing things and, and they're, you know, fine with just comparing averages. But I think, you know, if we fast forward, you know, 10 years from now, uh, I think one would be hard pressed to find any study that gets published in the field of nutrition that does not account for or acknowledge the variation in response that uh, that we're seeing. So um, again, it requires that kind of ongoing training of the next generation of researchers. Uh, so a number of my former graduate students are now professors themselves at various universities, and this is how they were trained. So they only know nutrition research in the context of nutrition and genetics and individual differences in response. So as they train the next generation of students and healthcare professionals, uh, that's the message that they're communicating. Uh, and uh, again, over time, I think we'll see that we'll um, overall in, improve our knowledge and understanding of nutrition through uh, incorporating genetics. I'm so glad you're pushing this change in the way we do research because the main problem that I hear people have with with nutrition is that there's so much contradictory advice you know one study says this like some one day it's this like coffee is good for you and next day coffee is bad for you and it's like you know these studies haven't taken into account the individual responses the genetic responses to caffeine for example um and that's why the research is so different every time so it's really confusing for people and I see it a lot with Vojo customers that 
when they have their results, they finally understand. They're like, oh, okay, this is what I respond to. And this is the advice for me. And, you know, you don't have to think about or look at anything else or all the general studies because, you know, everything then suddenly makes sense and fall into place. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for the work that you do. And, uh, and thank you so much for joining me today as well. I'm sure I'll be contacting you about a new paper that you publish uh, in the near future. Sure, it was absolutely my pleasure. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned the caffeine as an example, because uh, as you know, that's work that um, came from my lab. And that was a paper that we published uh, 15 years ago now. Uh, so it seems like wow. ages ago, but uh, every, just about every single genetic test on the market has that particular marker. Uh, because um, again, we, you know, we published the very first finding of that in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, and it had since been replicated by other researchers looking at not only heart disease, but hypertension, prediabetes, all showing the same thing, that um, coffee is either good for you or bad for you, depending on this specific version of the gene. So um, again, we need to have those clear, solid examples that are replicated, uh, and we it will ultimately help uh, clarify those uh, apparent inconsistencies in studies that are done in different populations with different genetics, you really have to start looking at the individual, as you say. So, Considering you, uh, you mentioned you're not a morning person earlier, I think you've done incredibly well. So uh, thank you for joining us uh, an early hour on your side. All right. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.